join me in the book of Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, and I want to read verses 19 through 24. Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. But when our masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to, uh, to observe being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. A strange path to power is what I want to talk about in reference to the story here in Acts chapter 16. The exile is a place we are often informed as a place of silence and a place of pain and agony and a place that is often associated with disappointment. But the exile can further be a place of growth and a place of pruning and a place of perfecting and shaping and instilling something within us that gives us sustainability. There is a validating point of this, of emphasis in the Old Testament. If you read from Genesis 12, throughout the Old Testament until Israel is incarcerated or in exile in Babylon, they are overwhelmingly gripped by the spirit of idolatry which often led them to become disobedient to the direction of God. But amazing, after the 70-year exile, when you read Israel's history going from that point to the closing of the Old Testament, there is never a mention ever again of Israel having idolatrous problems. And I want to contend that is because in that 70-year exile period, God did something to break that spirit of idolatry that previously was not broken. The exile under the thumb of someone else's oppression caused them to begin to react differently to the condition that they found themselves and yet they were able to acquire the power 
to move forward without that malady affecting them again. The community at large, in essence, gained a power that otherwise they just could not catch even under the freedom thumb of God. But have you noticed that power acquisition can be experienced by traveling down diverse paths to acquire some? Power generally leads to profits, and profits can become more important than people, which in return causes us to lose perspective on life. No story, at least historically, that I can immediately think of explains that point more pointedly than the story of the historical queen Cleopatra over Egypt. If you remember her story, her father, the Pharaoh, dies and leaves the dynasty to Cleopatra and her three brothers and immediately she becomes the queen of Egypt, but not really the queen. Because Egypt is indebted to Rome, and Rome wants to acquire Egypt because of the natural resources that the country in itself has, Rome put up the fighting power to defend Egypt at the request of the Pharaoh who made the allegiance. When Pharaoh dies, what Cleopatra doesn't realize is she not only acquires the throne, but she acquires her father's debts. The debt is that the emperor of Rome at the time is going to come to call his markers and wants his money. Cleopatra is at an internal war with her brothers because although she's the oldest, her younger brother beneath her is surrounded by power brokers who are eager to acquire more power. Cleopatra stands before on her national day to inform Egypt that without question she is the queen while her younger brother is being directed by those power brokers around him what he needs to do to combat, to combat her announcement. He gains such political power that Cleopatra is eventually pushed out of the power role and decides to go in exile and live. She does that until she can get her thoughts together as to how should I respond to the power-broking move of my younger brother. While she is in exile, the Roman emperor comes to call in his marker. Thus enters Julius Caesar. Caesar comes and says to uh, the then acting emperor of Egypt, I want my money for what your daddy didn't pay me. He not knowing what to do decides that he would behead Caesar's worst enemy. And by beheading Caesar's worst enemy, he presents to Caesar in a box the head of his enemy, thinking that that would gain him favor with Caesar. Only to notice that Caesar looks at that act as a bit of treason against him and causes his own soldiers to come and slay 
every one of the Egyptians' protective army in sight. Thus, when Cleopatra gets word that her younger brother is losing grip, she doesn't come back to Egypt. She finds her way to Julius Caesar's presence using her body and her mind to manipulate Caesar to gain power back to being the ruling person over Egypt. Thus, it works. It works and Caesar puts her back in power. Follow me now, I'm talking about power. Puts her back in power and she is the reigning queen of Egypt again. She considers how she can seal her deal. She becomes impregnated by Caesar. When she becomes impregnated by Caesar, because Caesar is not required by Roman law to be present when his child is born in a foreign country, she gives birth and calls him Censaria, from which now we utilize the term Censarian section. He, she does that because she gives birth at the absence of the normal through the canal. And as a result, Caesar doesn't believe that he's the father of this child. Talking about power now. So what Caesar does is invites her back to Rome and parades her around town only to upset those who are in the Senate because Caesar... Now, I need to interject this. Marriage then was not legally done the way we do marriage now, i.e., you don't go to the courthouse and get you a marriage license and come back and tell an official to join you together. If you were the Caesar, all you had to do was live with the person to whom you say you want to be married to, and you were married because the Caesar said so. It was an Egyptian rule as well. So Caesar brings Cleopatra back to Rome, parades her throughout the city, and the people become overwhelmingly irritated to the point where the Senate in Rome is so agitated because Caesar marries a foreigner and the foreigner threatens the established empowerment. And what did they do? You should know this story if you know your history. The Senate, someone in the Senate sends a note to Caesar who never reads it. And the note is telling him that somebody is going to kill you if you're not careful. Watch your back. What happens is while they are marching to the Senate, Julius Caesar is ambushed by those of the Senate and killed. Thus enters the next power broker, i.e. Mark Antony. Mark Antony comes to power, and yet Cleopatra gets word that Julius Caesar is dead. And when she finds out she's dead, she looks at herself and says, what do I do to secure my power here in Egypt? Well, Julius Caesar, it was good being with you, but bro, you gone now. I got to go to the next step. What does she do? She forms alliance with who? Mark Antony. In forming alliance with Mark Antony, she also becomes impregnated by Mark Antony. She is growing her economic and political power. And my point is, I'm trying to tell you, she decides to go down a strange path 
only because she is a woman. And because she is a woman, she can't induce military fight to gain power. So what does she do? Call it what you want to call it. But she uses her body and she uses her intellect to outwit the men who are supposed to be the most greatest of wisdom of the time in the day. Call her what you want to call her. But as far as I'm concerned, girlfriend was sharp. And she knew how to acquire the power that she wanted. Let me tell you how sharp she was. She so manipulated Mark Antony that Mark Antony decided because someone sent him a note and told him that Cleopatra had committed suicide, that joker goes and kills himself. And what happens? Cleopatra is not dead at all. What she does is gets her guards to go find Mark Antony and bring him back to her presence. And in Mark Antony's dying moments, he looks up at Cleopatra and realizes, you pulled the okadoke on me, and I'm not nowhere near where I thought I was in your life, but you deceived me so that you could gain power to be the most powerful individual, both in Rome and in Egypt. She becomes victorious, but there is something about Mark Antony that causes Cleopatra's heart not to go as sour as we think it would be. On March the 1st, 30 BC, if my memory serves it correctly, she ends up 10 days later after Mark Antony's death committing suicide. She does that because her kingdom although she had fought so hard to be in power, was beginning to crumble. And because it was beginning to crumble, Octavia enters Octavia, who is the next in command after Mark Anthony, is rising to power, and Octavia does not take any drama at all. In fact, Cleopatra once again goes up to her old trick and tries to seduce Octavia, to which Octavia does nothing but look at her, turn around, and goes back to his kingdom and sends his army back to destroy Egypt. Rather than to have herself killed by Octavia, she kills herself. All trying to acquire power. Power. And you will never know what limits you will go to unless you are introduced to the element of power and the potential of what that power can take you to become. Just like Julius Caesar, just like Mark Antony, and even just like Octavius, and even more like Cleopatra, don't ever say what you won't do to acquire power until you are in that space where power is made available to you. Not so in the case of two preachers who go down a different path to acquire power. In fact, when you read God's word, in order to gain power in the kingdom of God, God takes you down some strange paths, not at the level of what we have just been entertained with, but down a path that often is one that we certainly do not wish to encounter. Testing is one of those paths. 
You read the life of Jesus and you'll discover that when you read Matthew's account of Jesus, not until you get to Matthew 4 and 1, Jesus really has no power at all. In fact, all he is is the incarnate of God, but he's not yet endured with power until the Father arrives out of the heavens and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But that's not the capstone. The capstone to give Jesus power, says Matthew 4 and 1, that he's led into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. He has to have this encounter with the evil one in order for Jesus' testimony later as the son of God to be validated that as Paul would later re record in Corinthians, he has been tested in every point just like we have. Now we know that that cannot be a literal statement because I believe that Jesus wasn't tested at every point like we were. If it is, it certainly is not written in the text. But it's a metaphorical statement enough to let me know that Jesus, in his testing of the devil, faced evil's highest rank of power enough to inform me that sometimes you can't get the power you need to overcome until you have been tested with the power you already have. And sometimes God allows us to walk through those very trying moments where the darkness is evident and the veil of darkness is forever over top of us, testing us just as he did Jesus. But yet notice Jesus didn't fail in the test. He came through the test victorious every single time because he held on to the word of God that gave him victory every time. But he got power. He got so much power that when he left that presence of Satan, says Matthew 4 and 23, I believe it is, he began to move throughout Galilee and healing and setting free and making whole those who were ill. He gets power from the test. And you and I well know that there is some power that we've only been managed to, been only able to manage to acquire because of a test. See, a mere prayer doesn't get you the power. But a test to find out if the power can reside within you is inevitable. And Jesus tells us in his own action, you can't get some power unless it comes by fasting and praying, which is a test. Unless there is pressure created in your life, you can't get the power to overcome. Abraham doesn't become the magnificent person that he is until he is pressured at Mount Moriah. And when he is pressured at Mount Moriah, says God, now I know where your loyalty lies. When he is about to slay his son, God gives him power to allow his son to escape what other otherwise he would not have been able to do for. God gives us power to escape some moments, but had it not been for the test, the testimony that we now possess 
would not as be as powerful as it is. And that's the reason why when someone questions whether or not God can get you through, if your testimony has been validated by the test that you are in, you are the first person to stand and testify. I know God will bring you through. I am a living witness that he will take you through even when you are tested. And sometimes it's not just a test. To get power, sometimes we have to experience loss. And we know the challenge of the book of Job, Job's life. Amazingly, Job, at the beginning in chapter 1, is identified as this righteous man who has everything that probably any human being could ever want. But moving from chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 41, his life is turned upside down with loss. He loses his family. He loses his money. He loses his status. But most importantly, he loses his health. And what happens to us when loss comes in and robs us of our ability to provide, our ability to continue to acquire but reduce us to ground zero where there's nothing left from us and we wonder where was God in the midst of my most desired need talking about acquiring power but then when God restores and sometimes you don't always get back what you lost in the same way Sometimes you gain something more powerful in another dimension and you become even more powerful not in the earth and possessions but in the ability to persevere and in the ability to direct and in the ability to encourage. You get something that otherwise was not in your arsenal all because of loss and God gives you a new power. I.e. when Jesus dies on the cross and the disciples go hide they go high because they now feel like their total empowerment has been, has been demised. Jesus is gone. Not to receive word from Mary that Jesus says, go wait for me in Jerusalem in the upper room. And you shall receive power but not until after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. But don't forget this interesting little piece. The circle is not complete until Judas is replaced by one of whom they really selected by way of lots, but in return, God doesn't deny their selection, but instead, sends the mighty rushing wind on the day of Pentecost. And they have so much power unbeknowing to them that when the people passing by the upper room listen to the excitement of their moment, they assume that they are drunk on a serious intoxication. That they've gotten high on the wrong stuff. But when they leave the upper room, show you what power does. God so empowers them 
that the one that denied him, Peter, stands on the day of Pentecost and preaches and says, Acts chapter 2, 3,000 immediately felt that power as it came through that word. All I'm trying to tell you is that when you talk about getting power from God, get ready for testing, get ready for loss, and in this context of Acts 16, get ready for some persecution. Because Paul and Silas, in delivering this young girl who had no voice of her own, but whose life had been incarcerated, as I told you before, by the Parthenian spirit, the grip of an ancestry spirit that allowed someone else to exploit her life. Paul broke that spirit by speaking directly to evil and telling it in the name of Jesus, I command you to desert this girl's life. All was well until you read verse 19 of Acts 16. Says the text, the masters became infuriated when Paul and Silas, ghetto language, messed with their money. They saw that the profit that they were getting was no longer there. But the profit now has been lost and they are upset. And what do they do? They seize Paul and Silas. They are able to utilize political and even law enforcement power to bring two preachers together because not only did they deliver this girl, which they should have been rejoicing, but they cut off their profit. People will do some strange things when you bother their money. When money is a part of the equation, people can change hats, personalities, views in a matter of seconds. Uh, there is some truth. Whether you want to admit it or not, I'll let you wrestle with that. There is some truth to the old statement Money rules the world. You, you, you can fight it all you want. You can pretend not, we're not talking about the spiritual dimension of God holding the world in God's hand. We got that. But when you come into the earthly realm where you exist on a daily basis, money rules the world. I got you. You, you can pray. I, I'm not going to knock your prayer life. But if you don't pay that light bill when you're supposed to, you can tell the customer serving agent on the other end all you want. I'm praying about it. But he or she probably going to tell you, okay, by 5 o'clock this evening, if you ain't paid us that money, he will be out there to shut that power off. I ain't got nothing to do with you praying. Please pray. I... I'm praying with you. But you would be far more happy if I gave you or loaned you the money to handle the situation. In fact, I wish I could tell you exactly where it is, but there's a, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes where the writer says, money solves all problems. 
I wish I could tell you where it was. Get your concordance, look it up. I can't tell you. Somebody find a holler out and let me know where it is. I'll be more than happy to repeat again for you. But isn't that funny? Even the richest man on the world, obviously, will tell you, money solves all problems. Now, we know it doesn't solve all problems. But can I get a witness? Boy, it sure solves a mighty good amount of them. That's for sure. And why are the masters angry? Because Paul and Silas, even though doing a good thing, cut off their money. Cut off their money where they made their living. And that's why I'm struggling. I'm struggling with why Colin Kaepernick has not yet got a job, but I understand why. Because the provision of one would cut off someone's money so the threat looms in the air. Thank you. 1019. Ecclesiastes, can you read it for me please and make sure I didn't misquote it? Whoop, there it is. And watch this. I am convinced that if all the NFL owners got together and their circle was infiltrated by their uh, franchise players who would step forth and say, we, on behalf of the Players Association, Declare and demand that because Colin Kaepernick decided not to yield to the Pledge of Allegiance of the flag, but instead took his kneel to protest injustice under that flag that says it represents, and it doesn't, at least for all people, we demand because of his athletic ability that you give him a job and then you explain to the fans his social responsibility should not have anything to do with his athletic responsibility because you ain't paying him to be a social spokesman you're paying him to be an athlete for your organization now if those guys step up but you know why they won't because their profits are not being cut off and these masters said this guy along with this guy, look at verse 20, is turning our city upside down, throwing it into confusion, and they, being Jews, are saying stuff that is contrary to what we should observe as well as accept being Romans. I'm always fascinated when things go a certain way, it becomes a racial issue. Here it is. Because they cut off their prophets, they decide to identify their racial ethnicity as Jews and say that what they are preaching and teaching is messing with our city and they're talking about stuff that we shouldn't embrace nor observe and they weren't. Why? Because Rome was an embracer of diverse religions. So what they were saying was in line with the law of Rome. But the problem was it had messed, it had interfered, it had interrupted specifically with their dollars. 
when that happens, people change colors. These Jews are saying something that we shouldn't accept by Romans. Now I'm going to tell you one other thing and then I'm done because I'm never, not going to finish this sermon today. The next line of verse 21, I'm sorry, verse 22 is the clincher. The crowd rose up against them because the magistrates allowed these individuals, which was a Roman law, if you had an issue with someone, a critical term, you could actually drag them before the magistrate and in dragging them there, you could declare and demand of the magistrate that you give a verdict on the case today and whether the person is guilty or not, Guilty or not, and I'm, I'm here to tell you, that law still applies. How do I know that? All you have to do is be able to convince the magistrate now in the magistrate office that your complaint is valid without any real legitimate evidence at all. That person can take a warrant out on you without any legitimate evidence at all as long as the magistrate feels like your life is in a threat. Well, I should be able to walk down to the magistrate's office and just simply stand there and say, because I'm black, I need a warrant taken out on every white person in the world because I feel like my life is at threat. You'll get that when you get home. I, I got you. I know you can't figure it out now, but you'll get it when you get home. But do you see my point? In the text, they had really no leverage at all to arrest Paul and Silas. But let me tell you what God does in a strange way. Allows them not only to be arrested based on their religion and race, but the text says that they were beaten extremely with many stripes. That's the Greek term, with many stripes. It's almost a reflection of Jesus there uh, as he makes his way to Calvary, but before he gets there, he is beaten by the Praetorian soldiers of Pilate. Their backs are enduring and have endured the pain of the bundles of rods that's been struck on their back. And Jesus, look at the text closely, does not interfere at all. There is no interjection of God to stop anything. And that's because of three things. One, you can't get a pearl without saying agitation. It's not going to happen. That agitation in the oyster makes that pearl because it's that agitation that caused all the mucus to come together and create that glorious, elegant piece of jewelry that we love to see. Without the sand, it doesn't happen. Without the rods, Paul and Silas can't respond by praying and singing. Because anybody can pray and sing without a beating. But ask Fannie Lou Hamer, how do you sing with a beating? For being put in jail and being put in jail because she was leading persons to register the vote and because the sheriff was going to break her and help her understand that her efforts were in vain, he calls in another prisoner to 
beat her to pulp until Fan Lu Hamer says, he beat me until I could feel nothing anymore. But while he was beating me, said Fannie Lou Hamer, I was still praying to Jesus. Lord, if nothing else, take me into glory. When they were crossing the middle passage of the Atlantic, they jumped ship. Those Africans who said, I'd rather be dead, sleeping in my grave, to go home to be with my Lord than to be a slave to anybody. But you can't sing that unless you've been under pressure. You don't know how to pray until you've been under pressure. And you don't know how to sing until you've been under pressure. That's why when the Babylonians took Israel into captivity, Psalm 137, I believe it is, or 139, they raised a question, sing for us one of the songs of Zion. They said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And later, uh, uh, later Isaiah came along and says, that's the best place to sing God's song. In a strange land, in a strange place. Because God won't let you get power by the freedom of your choice. It's going to come through some testing. It's going to come through some loss. And it's going to come through some persecution. And Paul and Silas are put in jail. And to make matters worse, says verse 23, they are inflicted with many blows upon them but they cause in verse 22 the audience to rise up isn't it amazing how people jump on the bandwagon when they feel like something that affects them may cause them to lose so you probably heard recently everybody decided they're going to cut ties with the NRA and I think that's interesting but you're going to cut ties just because people have told you they no longer will patronize your business because some students have gotten killed by another child who had access to high powered weaponry now everybody decide we're not going we're going to find a way we got to find a way to make some rules against these gun laws we got to bring them out you got all of a sudden, now we got to bring them out? We, we haven't just started killing people. We've been killing people all along. But it's hard to fight the NRA when the money is funneling to your pocket. It's called lobbyist on the hill. And whenever that is happening, you can fight all you want. But when they shut those doors in Congress and they are in those midnight sessions making those rules, that bank account is registering some interesting numbers. And I don't care how persuaded you think you got this politician. When that number hits his bank account, boy, he might be going in this direction. But when he looks at that number, oh, got to go back the other direction. Said I'm leaning in this direction. He'll tell you, this is my season for grace and favor. Yeah, it's, it's, it's working. And Paul and Silas thrown into the worst of the worst in the jail. Isolation is done to break you. 
It's purposely done to break you that you might learn the rules for the general population and might decide that you are not going to rebuff the general population. And they put you in isolation. They put Paul inside isolation. And they kind of thought that in putting them where they put in them, that they would be shut off. But look what verse 25 says. But Paul and Silas around midnight, starting and singing hymns, spiritual songs to God. I'm dumb, but I got to tell you this one little thing. How, how do you sing spiritual songs and start praying out loud in jail, in isolation? Well, they weren't that isolated because you read further in the story, it says that the rest of the prisoners heard them and heard them enough where they, they began to, in their singing, rock the jail. And in rocking the jail, an earthquake occurred and the bands that locked them into the prison fell off and the gates that left them incarcerated dropped off and the jailer woke up and discovered that everybody that he thought he was supposed to be guarding was gone knowing that as a Roman soldier, if you had been given responsibility, your life depended on whether or not that individual was brought back the way you gave them. He was sure that everybody had gone. Prayer and praise equals power. Read the Bible and you'll discover that whenever you are blocked or matched against any kind of problem, any kind of demonic force, don't talk. Start crying to God. Let's have a conversation, Lord, that you endued me with power from on high. Watch this. That's internal. I got to get myself settled internally so that the spirit of fear and the spirit of defeat doesn't overtake me. And then externally, I got the willing to be praised in the presence of what I see. I got to release all of that fear that might be in me through my avenue of praise. I got to lift up my voice. I got to bless the Lord at all times. I got to be willing to open my mouth because I got breath. Let everything that have breath praise the Lord. I got to lift up my voice and holler, Lord, I thank you for all of your goodness. I thank you for all of your favor. I thank you for your power. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your provision. I thank you for your deliverance. I thank you for overcoming. I thank you for for the anointing. I thank you for the sustainability. I thank you for the victory. I thank you for answering my prayer. You can do it. I'm just trusting you. I'm going to praise my way out of this situation. He prayed first. I don't know how they did it. Maybe one prayed, the other prays, vice versa. It don't matter. They did a tag team thing and we lifted up their voice and cried out to God and then they lifted their voice and thanked God. But they couldn't do it unless they had gotten beaten. That's a strange path to power. I shared with them this morning that every preacher that I loved and endured and who's blessed my soul in ministry, all of them suffered from some physical malady. The great Charles Haddon Spurgeon 
British preacher preached thousands to the kingdom but left the pulpit every Sunday morning and suffered from depression and the gout. So much so that there are some days he couldn't even get out of bed because the gout had so gripped his feet. He was so depressed. Now watch this. How do you be depressed when you are leading thousands to Christ every Sunday? Because you got to remember Everybody's not what you see on the outside. You don't know what, if you had been listening to Dr. Victor last Sunday, he gave you a pointed point about preachers. We never really know how what we say is going to be accepted or if it ever even reaches the ears of those who listen to us and we all leave the pulpit every Sunday agonizing, did I hit my mark? Did I do my best? that I put it out there the way it needed to be put out there, did they understand? And you will never know the agony of what it means to have to do that. But my point is, it's a malady that you're going to face until the day we stop preaching. And then everybody I noticed who made an effect on someone's life, they eventually are scarred from some illness and go on to glory. And my question is always to the Lord, does that mean that we all got to get beat up to make an effect, an effective contribution to someone's life? But I never know how strong I am until I discover how weak I am. And I won't know how weak I am until I'm put into a place where my strength is tested. I never know how illuminating I am until I'm putting on a spot where darkness overshadows my illumination. And I never know what the potter is doing until when he puts me on the wheel and he finishes his product and then he puts me out to be able to be used among the crowd as a servant instrument. And not until then do I know how strong I am for the kingdom of God. And guess what? you don't know any different for yourself as well. That's why Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Paul and Silas, I hate to say it, had to go through this to get to the power that they needed. And might I add, when you look closely at the verse, I think it's 20, could be 1920, where it says that they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them before the magistrates. It's interesting that Paul did the exact same thing the Christians in Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Which really means what goes around comes around, and you will reap what you sow. That's a dangerous passage. I'll tell you what's so dangerous about it. The same way you talk about people, they talk about you. And the same way you're critical, somebody else is critical of you. Uh, the old saying is true. If they will bring a bone, they'll carry a bone away. Why y'all got so quiet on me? That thing hit home, didn't it? I, 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 know, I, I know I stepped on that foot, didn't I? I know it's hurting. That's why Jesus says, do unto others as you want them to do to you. The same measure you deal out, 
it will be dealt back to you. Somebody going to leave this house today, I'm done. Praying and praising, not understanding though, 